Acts 1, starting with verse 1. Hear the word of God. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever and let us pray asking the lord to teach us from his word heavenly father we're thankful for your word which is a light unto our path we are thankful that you have given to us this word inspired and infallible and inerrant we pray that you would teach us from your word today we pray that through your holy spirit you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive to your word, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts continues the Gospel of Luke. Here in Acts 1.1, Luke, the author, refers to the former treatise that I have made, O Theophilus. And we know that the Gospel of Luke was sent to or dedicated to Theophilus, Luke 1.3. And so in the book of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, you have the Gospel of Jesus Christ dealing what Christ did and taught, sent to Theophilus, and now volume 2 dealing with the Acts of the apostle, Apostles that is again prepared for Theophilus. This passage of scripture that we have read is famous because of Acts 1.8, where we find a giving of the Great Commission. And you're familiar with Acts 28, 18-21, where perhaps there's more emphasis on what they were to do. But here in Acts 1, verse 8, more information 
on where they would go and how their mission would unfold. Our particular portion, Acts 1, verses 1 through 11, deals with the 40 days that Jesus taught and led his disciples between the resurrection and the ascension. So we're dealing with a particular moment of time between the resurrection and the ascension covering the emphases of Jesus. And I'll point your attention to seven things that we find in this rich text. First, the resurrection. Verse 3, the first part of verse 3, the resurrection, Jesus offered proofs of the resurrection. We're told here that he, for 40 days, showed himself alive after his passion. So after the crucifixion, death and burial, after that, he showed himself alive with many proofs. The apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So as they went out to preach, they could say that they had seen the risen Lord. In fact, if you look at Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, you can see the requirements for a replacement apostle. Judas is gone. You're getting another apostle. What's required for the new apostle? Verse 21. Wherefore of those men which have accompanied us all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So the person had to have been with Jesus during his full ministry until the ascension, and that person was a formal witness of the resurrection. Indeed, in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his followers, his apostles, that they will be witnesses, and there's a formal legal sense to that, so that they can testify that they indeed had seen the risen Savior. So someone says, is this just a tale? Where did this come from? I was there. I saw the risen Lord. You might even remember the story of doubting Thomas in John 20. He comes and the other disciples say that they've seen Jesus. He doesn't believe it. He says, unless I can you know, touch the nail prints or put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And then Jesus shows up. John 20, verse 27, and says, Touch my hands, touch my side, and be not faithless, but be believing. In other words, the apostles saw the risen Savior. And there's tremendous hope for us. We go through life as mortal beings, and if the Lord tarries, we shall all die. And we have all known loved ones who have passed away, and we've grieved over the loss of family and friends. But the hope of Scripture is that Jesus has been raised again, 
the first fruits from the dead, and that we too will be raised from the dead. The resurrection is a central Christian teaching. In fact, as we read, when you're getting a new apostle, that apostle has to be able to testify to the resurrection. And sometimes you may have known people who go to a liberal church and they've lost their way and they don't believe in a resurrection and they have no faith and they have no hope. We believe what the Bible says about the risen Christ and the hope that we have because of his resurrection. So much so that the Apostle Paul will say, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shalt be saved. What a wonderful promise and a promise that's anchored in what God has accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're told, verse 3, Jesus showed himself alive, risen from the dead, with many infallible proofs. And that's the reason why the apostles were willing to go on and to die martyrs' deaths, because they knew what awaited them later, because they had seen the risen Lord. First, the resurrection. Second, the kingdom of God. In verse 3, the last part, Jesus, for 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We can say that the book of Acts opens and closes with teaching on the kingdom. We see it here, chapter 1, verse 3. If you look to the very end, the last couple of verses of Acts, Acts 28, verse 27, we read about Paul spending two years preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Big emphasis on the kingdom of God. Well, what does this mean? Well, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we mean first that God is king over the whole world. The theologians refer to this as the essential kingdom of God. God is the great creator of all things. He is sovereign. He rules over all creation. Every kingdom, every empire, every nation is subservient to him. God is king. The Psalms emphasize this truth over and over again. That God is the king of all the earth. Psalm 47, 7. The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. Psalm 24, 10. Jehovah says concerning his son, the Messiah, I have installed my king on Mount Zion, Psalm 2, 6. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, 6, we read that Jesus Christ is king of kings and the Lord of lords. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, says that God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. God is King. 
But there's a second sense that Scripture talks about the kingdom, and that is to say that Jesus Christ is king of the church. And this is called the mediatorial kingdom of the Lord. Jesus Christ is king of the church. And Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And in his capacity as king, he subdues us unto himself. He rules and defends us. And he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. There's this wonderful verse regarding the kingdom of Christ, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where we read that the Father delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And so the picture here is that we used to be in the kingdom of darkness, not where you want to be, but the God of mercy has taken us from there and has placed us in the kingdom of Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Thy kingdom come, we are praying that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed and the kingdom of grace would be advanced and the kingdom of glory would be hastened. Resurrection, the kingdom. Third, Pentecost. In verses 4 and 5, there is a reference to Pentecost. Jesus predicts Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which comes in Acts 2. You'll notice in verse 4 very specific commandments. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the Father's promise, which Jesus had previously given them. In fact, if you look at Luke 24, you'll see Jesus telling his disciples, stay here in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And then he promises in verse 5, a baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is far superior than the baptism of John. And it is the Holy Ghost that will empower the apostles on their missionary task. Verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and all these other places. The apostles would be empowered by the Holy Spirit for their mission. And so if you look at chapter 2, you can see how this unfolds. Chapter 2, verse 5. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And so at Pentecost, there were people from all over, every nation under heaven. And verse 8, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. Right? These are Galileans but we can hear them in our own language. We understand the gospel 
and the language of our birth. And then verses 9 through 11, there's a list of all these countries. Verse 11, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And so Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which would empower the apostles to be witnesses to the nations concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four, eschatological speculation. Look at verse six. When they therefore were come together, they had asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? So we've got things set up in the first few verses about what's happening, the kingdom of God, the coming of the Holy Spirit, world evangelization, and then the question, when is this going to take place? Actually, you might say in their question, verse 6, there are two questions. One is the nature of the kingdom. Is the kingdom being restored to Israel? And in chapter 28, we find extra information on this, that the Jews weren't very responsive, and so the gospel the gospel's going to the Gentiles is being proclaimed to the world. What is the nature of the kingdom? And second, what's the timing of the kingdom? When is this going to happen? Is it going to happen now? And uh, I can easily understand their interest in this. There's so many exciting things. The Lord is risen. He's there. He's talking about new things that are going to happen. When will all this take place? I grew up in a time of great end times speculation. So if you grew up in the 70s and you were in a Christian home or an evangelical home, lots of speculation about the timing of things, and probably understandably so. But if you look at what Jesus responds in verse 7, he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So with all the questions, Jesus shuts them down. That's not for you to know. The Father knows these things. The Father has set these things by his own authority and power. But it's not your job to worry about the details or the dates or the timing. That's the Father's business. God controls the end. We don't know the times and the seasons. The Westminster Confession of Faith closes with a marvelous chapter, chapter 33, concerning the Last Judgment. And the teaching here is that God has appointed a day of judgment. That day is not known to men, so that they're not confused by carnal security, because you know for a fact that if the word went out that the Lord was returning in 2027, you'd say, okay, that gives us four years and we can be involved in mischief. We don't have to worry. There's a good reason why that day is unknown. So that the people of God can always be ready to say, come Lord Jesus, 
come quickly. Miss the closing lines of the Westminster Confession of Faith that we may always be ready to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Well, there's eschatological speculation. There is also a global commission, verse 8. And this is the verse that's most familiar to us of the passage that I read. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Here you see the progressive rolling out of the gospel, Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is actually the whole structure of the book of Acts. So if you go through the book of Acts, you'll see a ministry in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Look at Acts 1, Acts 8.1. In Acts 8.1, you see an example of how this takes place. Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there's a persecution against the church, and that drives the church out into Judea and to Samaria, and the word spreads. And along the way, they preach to an Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to Africa. Along the way, the apostle Paul is saved, and he's called over to Europe. And in the book of Acts, you can see ministry to or the evangelization of different continents and Asia and Europe and in Africa, the gospel will spread. Notice the transition in Acts 1.8. But you, verse 7, it's not for you to know. The Father knows the seasons and the times and the epics, not for you to worry about, but you are going to be empowered by the Holy Ghost and are going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is a theme throughout the book of Acts, and it's a theme throughout Scripture. The nations coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The nations hearing the good news. The nations hearing the message of redemption and salvation. Listen to the words of Luke 24. 46 through 48, this is the way the Gospel of Luke closes. Luke 24, starting with verse 45, Then he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. The gospel message of salvation starts in Jerusalem and then spreads to all nations in the name of Christ. The ascension, verse 9. 
And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus ascended into heaven. And the apostles watched amazed. If you look at verses 9 through 11, you will see different words for seeing and beholding used five times in these verses. Remember, these are eyewitnesses. They're witnesses of all the things that happened with Jesus, and they watched Jesus ascending to heaven. So much so, in verse 10, while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, the text suggests they're just amazed. They're, they're staring. They, they're, they're overwhelmed by the things that they have witnessed. Indeed, Scripture had prophesied this. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we're told that the Son of Man ascends up to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. Throughout Scripture, there is an emphasis upon the ascension of Christ and then his session or being seated at the right hand of the Father. Turn with me to Acts 2, Acts 2, verses 32 and following. This is Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted... And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is ascended to heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand, and all of his enemies will be vanquished. There's tremendous power and encouragement in thinking about the fact of the ascension and the authority of Jesus Christ and his position in heaven at the Father's right hand. If you go to the book of Hebrews over and over again, it tells us that Jesus Christ made purification for sin. He was raised to the Father's right hand, and there he is seated until such time as his enemies are defeated. And one final point from our passage the second coming. <clears throat> Acts 1, verse 10. Well, they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up. Behold, the two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go up into heaven. Jesus is coming again. Jesus shall return. 
disciples are looking into heaven. They're looking steadfastly there. And I think the angels are in essence saying, don't worry, he's coming back. Or maybe the implication was here, why are you wasting time? He's given you work to do. He's coming back. You've got things to do. Um, Adam's uncle, Edwin, uh, was a, a wonderful minister is with the Lord now, but he always had a, a, a kind of a funny way or frequently had a funny way of putting things. But I remember Dr. Elliot once saying, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. Now, now, of course, the whole point would be that you should be doing things, not just looking busy, but nothing else. At least look busy. Jesus is coming again. Be doing something. And it may be there's a little element of that in the angelic encouragement. Jesus is coming again. Don't worry about that. <laughs> now, now, do something. Um, look busy. The scripture gives us tremendous confidence about the Lord's return. Jesus made a promise, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may also be. John 14, 2 and 3. We're told here, Acts 1, verse 7, that the Father has set certain, certain things by his power and determination. This is in the hands of God. And here in verse 11, we have the angel's assurance that this Jesus is coming again. And um, sometimes we'd say, rather sooner than later, right? Uh, or hurry up. Uh, when we have more grandchildren expected, then I'll say, well, maybe we could wait a little while, but you know, once the grandchildren are here, then the sooner the better. We don't know when the Lord's coming back, but we should always be ready to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, looking at this passage of whole, let me leave two things with you. In our verses, we see an emphasis on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, theologians talk about the humiliation of Christ when Jesus suffered and was put to death on the cross and he died to pay the penalty of our sins. But after that, there is the glorification or exaltation of Jesus Christ seen in his resurrection, ascension, session, and return. And all of these things are reflected here. In other words, there's great emphasis upon the exaltation and triumph of Jesus Christ. One of the things motivating the apostles was to know that Jesus Christ had accomplished everything necessary for redemption and he had been exalted on high and he had commissioned them to do his work. In discouraging days like our own, it is easy to feel helpless and hopeless, but we should always remember that Christ is raised up, he's ascended to heaven, he's at the right hand of his Father, and he's coming again. Listen to me read a few lines from Acts 7. 
you will remember that this deals with the martyrdom of Stephen. Acts 7, verse 56, Stephen has been preaching and his audience is not sympathetic and they're angry and they're about to kill him. Acts 7, starting with verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So even in martyrdom, even as he's being killed for his witness, Stephen was encouraged to see the heavens opened and to see the power and glory of Jesus Christ who had been exalted to the Father's right hand. And second, see the mission of the church. And so in Acts 1.8, we find a commission of Jesus for the apostles and the church to go to the ends of the earth. Two really famous commissioning passages in Scripture, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and here in Acts 1, verse 8. And the apostles did go. And you can see a record of it in Acts, and you can see a record of it in the epistles. And then there are oral traditions about how far the apostles went. I have some Scottish ancestry, and the oral records of the legends say that Andrew went to evangelize Scotland. We don't know if that's true or not, but there's a long history about that. And Thomas to India, and you can track where different apostles were said to have gone. The church was a missionary church. It was an evangelistic church. It was committed as empowered by God to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, first Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, that all nations might see the salvation of God and all nations might come to Jesus Christ. I know that the history of Tab Street has been the history of an evangelistic and mission-minded church. Let me tell you the story again of William Hodges Mann, one-time governor of Virginia. He died in the 1920s, so I don't know if anybody remembers him, probably not, but in retirement, he was a lawyer, and he was an elder here. And as an elder at Tab Street, if you look at the newspapers from the day, you'll see him being a champion for Sunday school movements. You'll see him as a champion for evangelistic movements. Here's this old, old man laboring right here in the sanctuary advancing mission causes, evangelism causes, and Christian education causes. It's a, a wonderful history, and the church has that long history doing what Christ commissioned the church to do, 
to testify to the kingdom of grace and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ through whom we have salvation and the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting and in whom we have been moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ where there is mercy and salvation. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're thankful for the commission that you've given to the church. We pray that you would help us to accomplish what you've set before us. We pray that you would equip us and strengthen us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would bless our efforts with success, and we pray that you would always help us to be faithful to the calling you've given. We're thankful that Jesus Christ has been raised up, that he is seated in heaven above, that he's coming again, and we're thankful for the promise of eternal life that you've given to your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.